Thank you. All right. Let's begin our time with a word of prayer. We can all settle down and stop thinking that I've got to Father, we are very thankful for this day, the day that you have made, Father. Help all of us to rejoice and be glad in it. Thank you, Father, that we have this day, as we do every day, but this day, Father, to gather together corporately to worship you. And we ask, Father, by the power of your Spirit, that we would do so in spirit and in truth. Father, as we uh, talk this morning about effectiveness and success in evangelism, I, I pray, Father, that we would be edified, that we would be sanctified. And I pray, Father, to be your will, that there would be conviction uh, in all of us, uh, including myself. And that, Father, in the end, you would be glorified in what we study this morning and what we talk about. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right, so I'm not going to spend much time, well, I'm not going to spend any time by way of introduction. Mark's already done that. I'm here with my lovely wife, Maria, uh, and we do hail now from Davenport, Iowa, originally from Southern California. That's where we spent uh, most of our lives. Moved to Iowa about seven years ago to be part of Grace Fellowship Church, where I do serve as a full-time evangelist. Uh, I've been out on the streets now for about 19 years, uh, full-time, and Prior to that, 20 years as a deputy sheriff in Los Angeles County. So, uh, and it's interesting how those two lives, those two careers uh, overlapped and came together and were useful. But uh, this morning we're going to talk about how to gain success in personal evangelism. And to get right to it, the three main points which are going to serve as a three-word definition for effectiveness and success are three simple yet theologically rich words. If you remember nothing else during this hour, remember these three words in relation to evangelism, obedience, faith, and love. Obedience, faith, and love. And my hope is, again, that our time in the Word this morning is going to be uh, a time where we are brought conviction, correction, sanctification, edification, uh, and whatever else the Word might choose to do. Um, so this isn't going to be an exposition of a particular text. We're going to be all over the Bible if you want to take notes. But a couple of foundational passages of Scripture for us this morning are Matthew 22, 34 through 40, and Matthew 28, 16 to 20. I'm going to read both of those. And I'm reading out of the ESV this morning. That is the preferred text, I think, here, right? Yes. Matthew 22, 34 to 40. Jesus tells us this, the Word of God tells us this, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And this is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And then Matthew uh, 28, 16 to 20, another passage of yours, familiar to all of you. Word of God says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy 
Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, because I am a Christian, make a declaration here, because I am a Christian, because I have been saved by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, I believe the best way for me to fulfill the two greatest commandments is this. The best way for me to love the Lord my God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength is to tell everyone, anyone, everyone, as many people as I can, about who he is and what he's done. And the greatest way I can fulfill the second of the greatest commandments, to love my neighbor as myself, is to go and tell as many people as I possibly can who Jesus Christ is, how they can flee from the wrath of God that already abides upon them, and how they can receive forgiveness, grace, mercy, and love through faith in Jesus Christ. Those are the two best ways, in my estimation, that I can fulfill the two greatest commandments. And so in our time, during our time this morning, we're going to consider what the Word of God says regarding this most important temporal endeavor loving God and loving people, through the vehicle of evangelism. More specifically, we're going to consider by what standard we ought to gauge the effectiveness or the success of our evangelism efforts. And again, the standard for gauging that, the standard for gauging effectiveness and success is obedience, faith, and love. It is not, you'll hear this over and over again, it is not results. Effectiveness and success in evangelism has nothing to do with results. Nothing. Now, to be a Christian and to not be regularly engaged in evangelism, not necessarily the way I do it, not necessarily the way Mark or others do it, but to be a Christian and not regularly engaged in evangelism according to the personality God has given you, not the personality God has given you, According to the context of life where he has placed you, not where he's placed me. But to not be engaged in evangelism is tantamount to being a police officer who refuses to enforce the law. A carpenter who refuses to pick up a hammer. A chef who refuses to prepare a meal. An athlete who refuses to exercise. A teacher who refuses to educate. A firefighter who refuses to rescue the perishing. A doctor who refuses to treat patients. A soldier who refuses to engage, fight in a just war. An ambassador who refuses to herald the king's message. In other words, a Christian who refuses to engage in evangelism is, by definition, a contradiction of terms. I'm a Christian. I don't evangelize. Something's wrong. Now, to profess faith in Jesus Christ... While knowingly and willfully refusing to tell others about Jesus, refusing to warn them of the wrath to come, and, and refusing to point them to salvation by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is such a dereliction of Christian duty, such an example of cowardice, such an act of depraved indifference, such an expression of lovelessness, that such a one should examine himself or herself to see if they are even. If you are unwilling, if you are unwilling to sacrifice a friendship for the soul of a friend, if you're unwilling to sacrifice comfort 
for the soul of a stranger, if you're unwilling to sacrifice your temporal freedom for the souls of the very ones who would want to take that freedom away, if you're unwilling to sacrifice your vaunted, cherished, and maybe even idolized ideals of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for the furtherance of Christ's kingdom, then what, with what confidence do you boast of your own citizenship in the kingdom of heaven? What do you have to stand on? Now, we all fail in this regard, right? I do. I have. I will. I'm going to fail in this regard. And God's grace in Christ's sacrifice is perfectly sufficient to cover and wash away our occasional and even our frequent sinful evangelistic failures. Because again, it is by grace we are saved and kept through faith. We are not saved through evangelism. We are not kept through evangelism. We are saved and kept by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But if you have no heart for evangelism, if you have no heart for the perishing, if you have no heart for those bound for hell, then you may not be saved yourself. That's not me passing judgment on you, it's me asking you to consider that. To consider that. And if this is you, not necessarily since this is you, but if this is you, then you need to repent and believe the gospel while God has given you time. Now, before we look at a biblical definition of effectiveness and success in evangelism, I want us to take a few minutes to think about, to consider, why and how many, if not most, Christians fail in evangelism. And that's not an exaggeration. Most professing Christians fail in evangelism. Most professing Christians don't engage in evangelism. Most professing Christians don't care to engage in evangelism, just ask an evangelist out the street. Most of the hecklers we encounter are not atheists. They're not Muslims or Buddhists or Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses. The most hecklers, the most angry people about us being on the streets proclaiming the gospel, the first words out of their mouth are, I know Jesus too. So to do that, to consider why so many Christians fail in evangelism, I think it will be helpful to consider the most common unbiblical definition of effectiveness and success in evangelism and the bad theology behind it. The unbiblical definition of success or effectiveness in evangelism focuses, again, on tangible results. How many decisions for Christ or how many people accepted Jesus as their Savior? How many people did we get to come to church as a result of our evangelism? That's how many Christians, many pastors, gauge the effectiveness of evangelism, by results. Well, unfortunately, result-driven models of evangelism inevitably results in a watered-down gospel and strange fire like the prosperity gospel or the word of faith movement or the seeker-sensitive movement or the seeker-driven movement. Result-driven models of evangelism often have as their foundation an unbiblical theological construct known as Arminianism. That is behind most of the failure in evangelism. It's Arminianism. It's this unbiblical notion that states, in part, that man cooperates with God in salvation. The biblical term for that is synergism. The idea that man and God work together to save man. That's not what the Bible teaches. But that's where unbiblical concepts like accepting Jesus comes from. The Bible doesn't teach anywhere that people need to accept Jesus. 
Nowhere in the Word of God will you find that people are called to accept Jesus. It, uh, synergism, Arminianism, teaches uh, things like asking Jesus into your heart. Nowhere in the Word of God will you find the idea of someone asking Jesus into their heart. It's not there. It's a tradition of men. It's not biblical theology. Oh, and this one, of course, the sinner's prayer. You won't find that anywhere in the Bible. Not a single place. Just pray after me and you'll be saved. Think, I, want you to, I wasn't going to do this, but I'm going to do this. I want you to consider this, okay? I have been married to my wife for 38 years, happily married uh, four decades of my life. What I'm about to describe has not happened, will never happen. Just going to be in a picture, okay? Let's say I cheat on my wife. Uh-uh. Let's say I cheat on my wife. Maria dutifully kicks me out of the house. I want back in. So I go to Marv. Marv, I want Maria to accept me. I want to ask Maria to choose my heart. I want to get back into her. But I need some help. Marv comes up with a plan. Marv's going to play Cyrano Diversion Act. Have you ever heard of him? So Marv and I go over to my house. She's already changed the locks. I don't have a key. I'm knocking on my own door while Marv stands off to the side in the bushes. <laughs> Maria opens the door, looks at me and says, what do you want? I don't know what to say. So I look at Marv in the bushes. Tell me you're sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Tell her you'll never do it again. I'll never do it again. Tell her you went back in the house. Would you please let me back in the house? How sincere do you think Maria is? Do you think any of that came from the heart? Or did it come from Mark? That's the sinner's prayer. Pray after me and repeat this prayer. Ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. Uh, confess your sin. Tell him you love him. Or whatever the prayer is. And so the person prays that prayer and they think they're saved because they prayed a prayer. I think I'm reconciled to my wife because Mark told me what to say. Doesn't work, does it? No. The sinner's prayer has been uh, responsible for more false conversion in the world than just about anything else. And you won't find the sinner's prayer anywhere in the Bible. Now do people pray? I prayed a prayer, right? Maybe many of you did too. You weren't saved. If you're saved, you weren't saved because you prayed a prayer. Right? You weren't saved because you asked Jesus into your heart. You were saved because God caused you to be born again to a living hope. And as a result, you might have prayed a prayer. You, you might have cried out to the Lord in the quiet of your room and, and asked for his forgiveness. You might have done that verbally. You might not have. None of the things you've done have saved you. Anything you do in response to hearing the gospel is a result of God saving you. Right? Those, these things we're describing are fruits of salvation. They're not works leading to salvation. All right. That was free. The, the Bible doesn't teach anywhere that people are saved by accepting Jesus. God doesn't need our acceptance. We need His. Word of God says in John 1, 12-13, But to all who did receive Him... Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Bible does not teach that people are saved by asking Jesus into their hearts. 
Again, rather, the Bible says in 1 Peter 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. And of course, Jesus' first message, his first sermon, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The Bible does not teach that people are saved by praying a prayer. Rather, the Bible says in Romans 10, 9 and 10, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And the person will only do that if God has caused them to be born again. Remember, in Romans 10, as through all the Romans, Paul's writing to people who already profess faith in Christ. They're believers. Acts 16.31 reads in part, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The Philippian jailer dropped to his knees and said, What must I do to be saved? Well, you need to pray this prayer, ask Jesus in your heart, and believe it, and really be sincere about it. And you'll be saved. No, that's not what he said. He said, believe. Believe, and you will be saved. So result-driven models of evangelism produce, as an inevitable consequence, an unspoken and maybe unrealized mindset that says the gospel isn't enough. The gospel isn't the power of God for salvation. The gospel needs my help. Needs my wit. Needs my personality. Needs my innovation. Needs my creativeness. The gospel needs something more than the gospel. So music that is man-centered instead of God-centered, worship service designed to cater to the lost instead of sanctifying the saved, outreach efforts that present the gospel as a consolation prize during the church parking lot carnival, friendship... <laughs> Come on now! Come on now, we've all been there, done that. Come on now! Friendship evangelism that is neither true friendship nor evangelistic. Gospel-less service projects that feed, water, clothe, and house people while tragically only succeeding in making people feel more comfortable on their way to hell. And all of this is an expression of the belief that Jesus isn't enough, that the gospel isn't enough, that salvation from the wrath to come by the grace of God alone through faith alone in Christ alone just isn't enough. God needs our help. No, he doesn't. The gospel doesn't need to be excused. It's supposed to be proclaimed. Why? Romans 1.16, For we are not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Not only does unbiblical theology and the minimization of the gospel power breed ineffective and unsuccessful evangelism, but so does wrong motives. You can be out there with the right message, but for the wrong reason. We all know that God can use a donkey, right? I'm standing here before you today. We all, and I'm not Japanese. We also know, we also know that a true gospel preacher under false pretenses can be used by God to usher his elect into the kingdom. Paul wrote in Philippians 1, 18 to 20, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers 
and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full coverage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul states, whatever the motives are, so long as Christ is proclaimed, Christ will use it. However, while God is perfectly effective in calling the elect to himself and will at times use false converts, as he did in my own life, the person who first proclaimed the gospel to me proved himself to be an apostate. That's reality in my own life. And, and though he will at times use false converts and wrongly motivated Christians to proclaim his gospel for the Christian with wrong motives, your evangelism isn't as effective as you may think. If you are engaged in evangelism with wrong motives, then you run the risk of bringing a reproach upon Christ if and when others discover your wrong motives. And you will have fewer crowns to lay at the Master's feet, as much of your work may in the end burn up with A and stubble. I've been on the streets proclaiming the real gospel for 19 years, and I am certain there is a good deal of that effort that will burn up. I will not have crowds to lay at the Master's feet for some of the work that I have done over those 19 years because my motives were wrong in doing it. Again, our focus this morning is having a, a biblical standard for gauging our effectiveness in evangelism, a standard that can withstand the scrutiny of naysayers inside and outside the church, and a standard that can provide us with encouragement and spirit-led motivation when we begin to ask ourselves the question, Am I effective? Is this effective? Is what I'm doing effective? Now again, the standard we're going to consider this morning, what I believe to be the biblical standard, has two sides to its coin. Yes, it's a standard that can both encourage and motivate us in our evangelism efforts. And it's likewise a standard that can correct and even rebuke us when we stray toward unbiblical ineffectiveness in evangelism. So what might some of the wrong motives look like? So I'd ask you to ask yourself, particularly if you are engaged in any form of public or street evangelism, and even if you're not out on the streets, just if you're engaged in private evangelism, personal evangelism, whatever it might look like, I'd ask you to ask yourself some of these questions. Are you motivated, one, are you motivated by a love for evangelism instead of a love for people? Are you motivated by a love for evangelism instead of a love for people? And again, as I look back on my 19 years in full-time ministry, I, I know there were times when I finished open-air preaching, for instance, and quickly packed up and headed home. Sometimes now there were real uh, time constraints, other obligations that required a hasty retreat, and maybe the police were chasing us away. So there could be reasons to just pack up and leave, okay? But there were certainly other times when I rushed off for no other reason than I was done preaching. I did what I came to do, I'm done, I'm gone. I didn't take the time to wait and see if anyone wanted to talk about what they heard. I didn't take the time to seek out the people to talk to them, people I knew had been listening to what I was preaching. No, instead I just said, well, my work here is done. I came out here to preach, I got to preach, felt good preaching, going home. I think those times of unwarranted quick exits from the streets revealed in me a greater love for the activity of evangelism than the biblical, biblically intended goal of evangelism, and that is the saving of souls. 
I enjoyed the act of evangelism more than I loved the people I was trying to reach with the gospel. Second, are you motivated by what evangelism can do for you in a temporal sense? Uh, there were likewise times when my public ministry was motivated by a desire to build the ministry. After all, it was my livelihood. There were times when I went the places I went, preached the messages I preached, partnered with the people I partnered, had the conversations I had, shot the video footage I shot, all to build my ministry. There were times when I was so focused on raising financial support for my family or building my tiny little brand or furthering my reputation with the hope of being invited into pulpits and on podcasts and on conference platforms. That's what motivated some of the work I did. And any time I was motivated by those things, guess what? It all burnt up. The Lord might have used it. Maybe the Lord saved people. But as far as a crown for me to lay at the Master's feet, it was gone. It was gone. Third, are you engaged in evangelism, whether public or personal, because you have to or because you get to? Are you motivated by the joy of telling people about Jesus? Or are you motivated because evangelism is little more than a spiritual box you know you are supposed to check. Are you engaged in evangelism because you get to? Or are you engaged in evangelism because you have to? Is evangelism an expression of worship or an exasperating form of work? Is evangelism work you do heartily as under the Lord, or is it nothing more than the work you do begrudgingly to stay out of spiritual trouble? <laughs> all right, so with all that said, Let's now look at these three elements, these three tests of effective and or successful evangelism. Obedience, faith, and love. First, is our evangelism, regardless of the context, public or personal, effective and successful because we are obedient to make the effort to make disciples as we are going? And as we answer that question, we should also ask ourselves, is my obedience genuine? Is my obedience genuine, or is it feigned, uh, or is it pretend? Psalm 66.3. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds, so great is your power, that your enemies come cringing, giving feigned obedience to you. Or Psalm 81.15. Those who hate the Lord would cringe. That word cringe can also be translated as pretend. Those who hate the Lord would cringe, pretend obedience toward Him, and their faith would last forever. Now, if your obedience, if our obedience is ever feigned or pretend, then we have to repent of that. And having settled the matter, we should recognize that our obedience in evangelism comes, in part, from the reality that we are slaves to righteousness, slaves of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Romans 6.16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And as slaves of Christ, we understand that our obedience and evangelism isn't special. It's not noteworthy. It's not even praiseworthy. We're simply doing that which our master has commanded us to do. We should not think it's something special that we engage in evangelism. And we shouldn't be waiting for a pat on the back from our Savior. 
Listen to what the Word of God says in Luke chapter 17, verses 7 and 10. Jesus speaking, of course, which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down and eat. But will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat, and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink? He does not thank the slave, because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, We are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Our obedience and evangelism is an expression of love, about which we're going to look more closely in a few minutes. There can be no true love for Jesus without a desire to obey his commands. There can be no true love for Jesus without a desire to obey his commands. Jesus said, John 14, 15, If you love me, you'll do what? You will keep my commands. Right. John 14, 23-24, just a short time later, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. And then a little later in John 15, 10, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And this kind of obedience is commensurate with a real desire to follow Christ wherever he leads, to follow Christ even to where he has already gone, to deny ourselves and to take up our own. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. Mark 8, 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Luke says similarly in his account in 9, 23, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Obeying Christ in evangelism is a living testimony, testimony, and if need be, a dying declaration to the reality that Jesus Christ has commissioned his apostles, and therefore all of us who would come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ as a result of their gospel teaching. Matthew 28 again, 18 and 20, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Yes, brothers and sisters, obedience to Christ is a barometer for success and effectiveness in both personal and public evangelism, and faith is another barometer. Evangelism engaged by faith and in faith and through faith is effective and successful evangelism. When we don't engage in evangelism because we've bought the world's and sadly much of the church's lies about the effectiveness of evangelism, we say with Peter on the night of Jesus' arrest, mocking and beating, I do not know the man. Think about that. When we refuse to engage in evangelism, when we lack the faith at that moment to open our mouth and to proclaim the gospel, counting the cost, we are agreeing with Peter that we do not know the man. 
However, we are faithful when we are so unashamed of the gospel that the thought of denying Christ by way of evangelistic inactivity or slothfulness that we cannot help but declare the gospel in our homes, at work, at school, in the company of lost friends, in the company of strangers, on sidewalks, on campuses, large cities, small towns, wherever we are, because again, we are not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In evangelism, we faithfully refuse to buy the lie that says to be too evangelistic is to risk pushing people away from Jesus. We refuse to see ourselves as public or corporate nuisances. Instead, by faith, we see ourselves as Christ sees us as ambassadors, as commissioned ambassadors. 2 Corinthians 5.20, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. When we are faithful in evangelism, we are ready to speak confidently, assuredly, unashamedly, gently, respectfully about the hope that is in us. 1 Peter 3.15 But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So you might be thinking, well, Tony, no one's asking. <laughs> no one's asking, so I'm off the hook. Because it says right there, be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks, and no one's asking. Well, maybe no one is asking because you don't live or act or sound like Jesus to begin with. Maybe because they never hear you speak of Christ, they have no idea and no reason to ask you about the hope that is in you because they have never heard or seen any hope in you. So no, you're not off the hook. So I, I do know what it's like to be arrested for preaching the gospel. I do, both here and abroad. And I think the time is coming when more Christians are going to be arrested and more Christians are going to lose their job. And no, I'm not a pessimist. <laughs> I'm hopeful that everything that God's Word says is true. And that's going to happen. Dear brother of ours in our church has lost his job because he refused to bow his knee to the LGBTQ flag standing in front of their workplace and while they were encouraging employees to wear LGBTQ-affirming shirts, he decided to wear a t-shirt well within policy that said, pride goes before destruction and haughtiness before fall. <laughs> and, uh, and they fired him. And they fired him. Yeah. I think those times, I think those times are coming. But I have us all ask ourselves today, if they started rounding up Christians, and you found yourself standing in court, found yourself standing in trial for being a Christian, would there be enough actual evidence to convict you of the crime of being a Christian? Now remember, no one can see you pray. Right? You might do a lot of things for Jesus that no one sees. But would they be able to point to any evidence, any public evidence? Would there be any witnesses to testify and say, he's a Christian, she's a Christian, he shoved Jesus down my throat, she told me I was going to hell, 
any evidence at all to convict you of the crime of Christianity? Now's the time to go and make some. Now's the time. The faithful Christian evangelizes knowing and believing that the God who is always working is at work in every gospel tract distributed, in every evangelistic letter written to a loved one, in every science, philosophy, and social studies question biblically answered, in every conversation had, in every open-air sermon preached. The, the effective and successful evangelizing Christian who is not privy to the names of all the elect, to all the names written in the Lamb's Book of Life, believes that salvation is possible for every lost person on the receiving end of his or her gospel presentation. By faith, we believe that the person I'm handing this tract to, God's going to save. That the person I'm going to send this letter to, God's going to save. That this conversation I'm going to be engaged in, God's going to save. That's what the Christian believes. The effective and successful evangelizing Christian knows that all things are possible with God, including the saving of souls. Matthew 19, 24-26, Again I tell you, Jesus said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are including the saving of your co-worker and your spouse and your children and the stranger on the street and the police officer putting handcuffs on you and everyone else. By faith, the Christian believes that God does save and will save people. The faithful evangelizing Christian fears God and not man. And when fear of man raises its ugly head, the faithful evangelizing Christian fights the sin of fear by the power of the Holy Spirit. He knows that he shouldn't fear man who can only kill the body. He knows God values him more than many sparrows. He knows God has numbered both his days and the hairs on his head. And so he faithfully sacrifices of himself, and if necessary, sacrifices himself, not on the altars of comfort and safety, but at the foot of the cross knowing that persecution is good for him, that persecution is a gift from God to him, and that persecution is a glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 10, a longer passage, 21 to 33. Jesus said, Brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, when you hear whispered, proclaim in the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. 
Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Yes, brothers and sisters, if we are obedient in our evangelism, if we are faithful to Christ and the gospel in our evangelism, then we are, by definition, both effective and successful. If we are obedient and faithful, we are successful and effective every single time we engage in evangelism. Finally, evangelism, motivated by love for God and love for people, is always successful and effective. Now, as I started to try to land the plane here in the next few minutes, I want to repeat something I said here at the beginning. Because we are Christians, because we have been saved by the grace of God alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, again, the best way for us to fulfill the two greatest commandments is to love God in such a way that we will sacrifice all, risk all, to express our love to Him by telling the world about Him. And the greatest way for us to fulfill the second commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves is to warn them to flee from the wrath of God that already abides upon them and to point them to Christ, to share Christ, to communicate Christ, to proclaim the gospel to them. Furthermore, because we love the people with whom we have relationship, we must be willing to sacrifice these relationships for the sake of the souls of our loved ones and friends. We must be willing to lay down all of the benefits we may derive from the relationships with our lost friends and family members. We must be willing to sacrifice that which in many cases brings us the most joy, our relationships. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. Maria and I made a, a brief side trip on our way out here from Iowa. We drove up to Saginaw uh, before coming, coming down here. And the reason for going is Maria has a, a, an aunt in her late 80s who lives there. You've only seen her, what, a couple of times in the last 40 years? Not right? I mean, yeah. when you flew out there after graduating high school and then came out, for the we came out for the wedding. and So two or three times in the last four decades. Right? She's pushing 90 years old. There's not going to be too many more opportunities uh, for Maria to see her aunt. And Maria is describing her aunt to me and says, well, she's a lot like my dad. And we love her dad. Her dad's a tough nut to crack. <laughs> dad is a tough nut to, to crack. And so we, we arrived at, uh, at her house yesterday, and there's a number of other family members that live locally that came to, to see Maria the, to say hello, and we chatted for a while, and, and it was about time for us to leave, about time for us to head down here. And uh, I'm thinking, I, I've got to communicate the gospel to Maria Tant. And so I asked her, so how can we be praying for you? And that opened up a brief conversation about things going on in her life, which led to about a half hour of gospel conversation with her in tears. Now, we don't know if her aunt's going to repent and believe God. God knows that. But, but Maria was willing to risk the relationship of an aunt she's only seen a few times and who may not live much longer for the sake of the soul of her aunt. We've got to love 
the people we love the most by willing to lose that relationship with the ones that we love for the sake of their souls, for the sake of the glorification of Christ. And not only must we be willing to lay down our lives for our friends, lay down our friendships for the soul of our friends, but we must also be willing to have that same kind of sacrificial love for our enemies and the enemies of Christ. Matthew 5, 43-48. You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore you must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Sadly, much of the visible church today is telling professing Christians the best way to love your enemies, the best way to love the lost is don't offend them. Don't make them mad. Don't make them hate you. You're just going to push them away. Well, that's bad theology. And it's such bad theology to think that we can push anybody away from Jesus. Why? Because according to the Word of God, they're running as fast as they can away from Jesus. This pudgy 60-year-old man can't catch them to push them away. Because they hate Christ so much, they're running as fast as they can away from Him. They're not seeking God. The only ones who seek God are the ones that the Father is drawing to Himself. Those are the only ones who are seeking God. Everyone is running away. They're already offended. They already hate God. They already hate you thinking that you know Him. But the church says, we don't want to upset them. We got smoke machines to pay for. We got strobe lights to pay for. We've got hired lost musicians from secular bands that we've got to pay for. And if we don't keep the seats filled, where am I going to get these Hawaiian shirts? <laughs> That's what the visible church says. There was a little sarcasm there, but come on, really, was I that far from the truth about these things? Come on. We are effective and successful in our evangelism efforts when we love our enemies, when we do good to those who hate us, those who will fire us from our jobs because of our faith in Christ, those who will arrest us because of our faith in Christ, those who may try to inflict physical harm upon us because of our faith in Christ. And again, there is no greater way we can love our enemies than pointing them to the one they hate the most. The one they hated first, before they ever started hating us. And that's Jesus Christ the Lord. Luke 6, 26-28, Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. It is this kind of love, love for Christ, love for friends and family, love for strangers, love for enemies, that produces in us a holy tenacity and a spirit-driven boldness that makes us both successful and effective in our evangelism efforts. When the early church 
was receiving its first real taste of potentially hazardous and costly persecution, they did not petition the Lord for relief. They did not ask God for relief. So much did they love Christ, so much did they love their enemies, that they asked Christ for more boldness. Acts 4, 23-31, when they were released, when Peter and John were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them, threatening them with their very lives to stop teaching and preaching about Jesus. And when they heard it, when the church heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Please make it stop! No. They said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants relief. No. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. With boldness. It is this kind of sacrificial bold love that casts out all fear. And probably the biggest deterrent to effective and successful evangelism is fear. But love, true biblical love, removes that sinful deterrent. First John 4, 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So brothers and sisters, as I've said for many years, I say to you now, the only time we fail in evangelism, presuming we're doing it biblically, the only time we fail in evangelism is when we fail to evangelize. That's the only time you fail in evangelism. If you are obedient to Christ and proclaim a biblical gospel, then you are successful and effective in your evangelism efforts. If you are faithful to Christ and His Word, then you are successful and effective in your evangelism efforts. If you seek to fulfill the two greatest commandments, to love God and to love your neighbor, then you are successful and effective in your evangelism efforts. Obedience faith, and love. Obedience, faith, and love. With God the Father keeping us, with God the Son shepherding us, with God the Holy Spirit indwelling us and leading us, and with obedience, faith, and love as our holy motivations and our foundational principles, we can only be effective and successful in our evangelism efforts. You have no chance of failure. Because you're not looking at the results. You're not looking at the results. Look, I, I don't think we're living in right now in the time of Whitfield and Wesley and, and great men like that who are seeing 20, 30, 40,000 people at a time drop through their knees and say, what must I do to be saved? 
Can God do that again? Almost certainly. Will he do that again? I don't know. But just in looking at the world around me, and I am not a pessimist, <laughs> just in work looking at the world around me, much of the gospel ministry today is actually a form of God's judgment upon people. Because the word of God says, the word of the cross, the gospel, is going to be an aroma of life unto life to those who are being saved. And it's going to be an aroma of death unto death to those who are perishing. And I think everyone that God has numbered in his elect will be saved. It's certain because God has said so. We don't know who those people are. We don't know what the number is. And that's actually a good thing. Can you imagine what we would do to people if we had that information? How we would treat people we knew weren't in the book. How, how our simple flesh would treat those people. God is so kind to us to not tell us who all the elect are and what the number is. Thank you, Lord, for not giving your sinful people that information. But the road is broad that leads to destruction. Many are going to find it. And when God talks about books being open, there are books of those who are perishing, and there is one book of those who are going to be saved. The number of the saved is going to be an uncountable, unimaginably vast number, and there are going to be more people going to hell than that. So now, as much or if not more than ever, we should be looking at results. Because if we proclaim the gospel to people and they walk away scoffing and mocking, we should be praising God because he did exactly what he intended to do with the gospel proclamation at that moment. If someone tears up your gospel tract, you ought to be praising God because God did exactly what he intended to do with that gospel tract. If you get punched in the nose during a conversation, you should be praising God and not saying, I am ineffective, I was unsuccessful. You should be praising God because God did exactly what God intended to do with that conversation. If you stand up to open air preach and there are 20 people watching you thinking there's going to be a train wreck happening and then you mention the name of Jesus and there's one person standing there, you should be praising God because God did exactly what he intended to do with the proclamation of the gospel. Because the effectiveness and success isn't based on results. It's based on obedience, faithfulness, and love. So are you effective and successful in your evangelism efforts? Knowing that none of us are perfect, knowing that all of us will fail from time to time. Are you effective and successful? Well, no, Tony. Not when you put it that way. In fact, I don't engage in evangelism. That's not my gift. And God never requires a special gift of the individual Christian to enable him or her to do that which he has commanded every Christian to do. God never requires a special gift of the individual Christian to enable him or her to do that which he has commanded every Christian to do. You will not find anywhere in the Word of God the gift of evangelism. You won't find it. Oh, I, you may run to Ephesians chapter 4 and say, well, God, God has gifted the church with, with uh, prophets and apostles and pastors and evangelists and teachers. You know, the quote-unquote five-fold ministry where only maybe one or two of the folds still remain? I believe that. But the evangelism in that context was a gift to the church. It wasn't a gift given to that man. It was a gift given to the church. A gift given to the church. 
You're not going to find that gift anywhere in the Bible. Now, might there be some Christians who are better at evangelism than others? Yeah, certainly. Just like there are some Christians who are more hospitable than others. There are some Christians who serve more diligently than others. There are certain Christians who are more gifted and blessed to be able to give more differently than others. However, that there are Christians who are better at evangelism than others doesn't free a single Christian from his or her responsibility to engage in evangelism. And Tony, I hear what you're saying, but I, I just don't want to do it. I don't want to lose my friend. I don't want to lose my scholarship. I don't want to lose my job. Well, if that's you, dear friend, you need to understand that whatever or whoever you are unwilling to give up for the sake of Christ, unwilling to forfeit to obey His command, to tell people about Him, then at that tragic moment of refusal, that thing or person you refuse to let go is your God. You are in that moment an idolater. And you need to repent. You're an idolater of the relationship you don't want to lose. You're an idolater of the grade you don't want to forfeit. You're an idolater of the job you don't want to sacrifice. And you need to repent. You need to repent. It, and you need to understand that if you bristle, it's not because of your love for people that has you determining that you won't let go of them if necessary, to proclaim the gospel to them. It's because you don't want to deny yourself. You don't want to deny yourself or the pleasure or benefit that you derive from those to whom you refuse to proclaim the gospel. You don't truly love them. You love yourself. Somewhere inside you, you believe the people in your life need you more than they need Jesus. You believe you need the people in your life more than you need Jesus. And if that's you, you need to repent. We are out of time. Again, you can and will be always effective in your evangelism efforts if you are obedient, faithful, and loving in those efforts, no matter what the results. Because even the visible results we see may not be real. Right? The, the people who make professions of faith in Christ may or may not be saved. They may or may not. Or people who, people who throw rocks at you might be the person you see next to you around the throne of grace. Right? So results aren't reliable anyways. But they certainly shouldn't be our motivation. Obedience, faith, and love. All right.